I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. We are going to finish John 11 today. We are going to end with just a few short verses, verses 47 through 57. We're going to end out this chapter, then we're going to dive into something a little bit different next week for Christmas. Then we're going to do something different for New Year's, and then we're going to come back into chapter 12. So we're going to just end chapter 11 today. We left uh, last week. Lazarus had been raised from the dead. And tradition says, by the way, we don't know this, but tradition says, we don't know for a fact, but tradition tells us that Lazarus lived for another 30 years after he was raised from the dead. Uh, We do know where Lazarus went. Some of you asked me that last week. Where did he go when he died? He went to heaven, absent from the bodies to be present. Um, with the Lord, and so Lazarus went to heaven to be with his heavenly father. Um, unfortunately, he was told by somebody, you got to go back. Um, Jesus is going to raise you from the dead. There's a big funeral procession. Everybody's weeping. Everybody's crying. you got to go back. Many people ask, what happened in heaven that Lazarus saw? What did he experience? And John reports none of what happened, specifically after His death. What did he experience in the grave? What did he experience in heaven? What did he experience um, as he came back to life and he was talking to other people? Was was he sad that he was going to have to die again? Was was that a fear in his mind or did he just, well, I did it once, been there, done that. Who can say that? Who can say I have done death? Uh, We can't. Um, But he said that. And some people ask, why doesn't John include more? Um, Well, perhaps... Uh, like Paul, remember Paul in Second Corinthians chapter 12, he was told by God once, so Paul was taken, caught up into the third heaven, and he was told by God, um, you are not allowed to tell anybody what you've seen. You, you've seen majesty, you've seen great things, but you can't speak about what you've seen. So perhaps Lazarus was told the same thing. Perhaps Lazarus was told, you know what, you've seen great things, but you cannot go tell of what you've seen. We don't know exactly what happened, but we do know this. We do know this. That wasn't the point of what John was writing about. The point of what John was writing about, the point of including this specifically in the gospel, was not to let us focus on Lazarus. It was to make us focus on the glory of Jesus. It was to make us believe. These things are written so that you may believe. It was written so that we would believe in Jesus as we see his glory. Now, people are going to react to it. Verses 45 and 46. Many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. People are going to react. Some are going to receive. Some are going to believe. Once they see the sign, they're going to believe what has been done as a, a sign from God. But some are not going to react well. They're going to react in unbelief. And that's predictable. We've seen both of those reactions in the Gospel of John. What comes next is an amazing scene. It's a scene with the Sanhedrin. It's a scene with a council being convened to figure out what are we going to do about what's happening, about this man. So I want to read these verses. I want to ask the Lord's blessing, and then I want to dive into them. And Lord willing, we will see things from these verses that will grow our affections, raise our affections for Jesus, change our understanding of who he is and of what he has done. John chapter 11, verse 47. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? 
This man is performing many signs, and if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it's expedient for you that one man die for the people and, the whole, that, the, and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus, and they were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Is he not going to come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Father, thank you for these verses. Thank you for the rich truth here. And I pray that you would supernaturally elongate our time. Give us um, a majestic understanding of these verses. Give us a desire to read your word all the more because of these verses. And may Jesus be glorified in our midst. Open our eyes now to behold wonderful things from your word. We pray it in your name. Amen. So, verses 45 and 46 are the reaction to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. These are predictable responses. We've seen these responses throughout the Gospel of John, belief and unbelief, and specifically in verse 46. So, 45, some people believe for sure, but some of them won't believe, and they go and they tell the Pharisees maliciously what Jesus had done. And and that just reminds us yet again, a, a, a message, a truth that we've seen time and time again, that there are some people that no amount of evidence is going to convince them if they've already determined to not believe Jesus' claims. So lack of evidence isn't the problem here. Even the religious leaders are going to say, he's doing many signs that prove he's the son of God. So lack of evidence isn't the problem. People's hardness of heart, their love for the darkness, all of those things that we've detailed in the Gospel of John, that is the problem. So, verse 47 The chief priests, that's the Sadducees, by the way, chief priests are the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, so Sadducees and Pharisees, they hate each other, they're bitter enemies, uh, but now they hate Jesus more than they hate each other, so they're going to work together. The chief priests, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees convened a council. Now, typically, whenever you see that word council in the Bible, it's referring to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the supreme court of the Jewish nation. It was uh, a group of 70 men plus the high priest, so 71 people together, and it was basically all three branches of government. It was judicial, it was legislative, it was executive. It had all the power, and it was, it was kind of a dummy power because Rome ultimately controlled what the Sanhedrin would do, but Rome wanted you to be happy as a conquered nation, and so they said, you can have your laws, you can have your religion, you can have your rules, you can do a lot of things, and, and we'll let you do that. Just make sure you pay your taxes, and make sure you do not um, riot against us and fight against us. If you don't do those two things, or if you pay your taxes and, and you don't fight against us, you will be a happy people. So the Sanhedrin is a court that is going to convene. Now, some people would say that this council 
might not be the Sanhedrin. It might just be a committee, a, a certain aspect of the Sanhedrin. Either way, it's a group of the religious leaders that are gathering together. And they're gathering together to, to ask a question, but it's not to figure out the truth of what's happening. It's not to investigate the truth of who Jesus is. The, the whole point of this uh, committee, this, this council, is purely for survival. We just want to survive. Um, we're, we're not looking for the truth. Who is this man? Should we bow the knee to him? They know they hate him, and one thing is at stake, and that's survival. And so they ask, verse 47, what are we doing This man is performing many signs. What are we doing? I love the irony. There's there's really five major ironies in this verse, or in these these verses, in in this passage. The first is here. There's an ironic contrast. Jesus is performing and accomplishing many things. And they say, literally in the Greek, what are we accomplishing? My Bible says, what are we doing? But what are we accomplishing? He's accomplishing everything. We are accomplishing nothing. We're not making anything happen. Interesting to know, again, they're not denying his signs. He's performing many signs. And he's performing signs, as Nicodemus said in John 3, that only a man sent by God could do. They know that Jesus is who he claims to be, but they don't like that. They don't like that. And so they say this, verse 48, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Our place is probably the temple, our place of religious worship. We want our freedom to worship in our our own religious ways. We want all of the benefits that that religion brings to us. We're powerful. We're famous. We have a lot of money. We don't want this man to cause a riot. We don't want Rome to think that we have people that are out of hand and come in. Now, there's there's two ways to take what they're saying. One way would be taking it um, to be a a genuine, they feel threatened by Jesus and are afraid that Rome's going to come in and take over again and, and destroy their religion, destroy what they have going on. The other way to take it is... Um, not fearing the political issue going on here and just trying to make something up that they can take to Rome to say, let's get this guy killed. So the first way, they might be saying, this man is performing all these signs and men are going to believe in him and the Romans are going to come and take away our place because people love him so much they're going to make him king. Now that's possible. Remember John chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, people rush in to take Jesus to make him king by force. You remember that, right? They want to make him king. So there might be a sense where the religious leaders are looking, saying, okay, if Jesus was feeding 5,000 people, maybe more like twenty to 25,000 people, but if he fed the multitudes bread and they loved him so much that they wanted to make him king, then how much more so if he raises a man from the dead are they going to say he needs to be our king? And if they want to make him king, Rome's going to say that you only have one king, and that's Caesar. And we will kill anybody who's involved in insurrection and will take away your power. Maybe that's the case, potentially. I personally don't believe that's the case. I think that they don't fear the politics that are going on here. I think that they are going to use that to take that to the Romans. To say, he needs to die because he's making himself out to be king. They know that Jesus is not going to start a revolution. They know that. Even when they ask him, should we pay taxes to Caesar? He says, yeah, I Caesar's our king. They know that he isn't trying to start a revolution. And so 
John Calvin says, this is just a plausible disguise. This is just a way in which they can get Jesus out. So why did they hate him? Why were they afraid of him? It's one thing that Jesus is calling them out on their sin. It's never fun to hear. That's one reason. But even more than that, Jesus is calling them out on their attempts at righteousness. He's saying your entire religion and your desire to try and be righteous by doing these things isn't working at all. I don't know if you've ever had that happen when somebody is um, misjudging your motives and you're trying to do something good and they call you out on it. Um, That's how they feel. You're calling us out on what we're trying to do that's good. and, And granted, we know that ultimately they just wanted power. They wanted fame. They wanted prestige. They wanted success and money they wanted all of those things they were using religion to get it so they they don't believe i personally think that they don't believe jesus is going to start a revolution they're just going to use that as a way to get him killed that's ultimately what they're going to do even at the cross when the placard is above jesus here's the king of the jews they say that's not he's not our king so so they use that to get him killed but they didn't believe that here's another Irony, this is irony number two. They are afraid of Jesus and they see the one who came to be their savior as one who has come to destroy them, to destroy their nation. So Caiaphas is going to step in. Verse 49, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Caiaphas is a Sadducee. One of them, he's the high priest that year. He was high priest from 18 AD to 36 AD. He was high priest for 18 years. He was son-in-law to Annas, who was the ex-high priest. He was high priest. Annas was high priest from AD 6 to AD 15. And between 15 and 18, there were three high priests. Um, Typically in the Old Testament, you see the high priest is high priest for life. They're supposed to be for life. But in the New Testament... In, in the Gospels and in Acts, and even Josephus tells us specifically that from the time of Herod the Great's death, which is right around the, the turn of B.C. to A.D., um, from Herod the Great's death to 70 A.D., there were 28 high priests. This was an office where men are constantly going in and out. Uh, in fact, in, you could just write down Acts chapter 23, verses 1 through 5. There's an amazing picture of this because Paul is before a high priest named Ananias, And as he's before this high priest, the high priest asks him to say something. And Paul says, my conscience is clear. I've done nothing wrong. And Ananias says, hit him. And somebody punches him in the face. And and Paul says, what are you doing punching me? I've got a clear conscience. I haven't done anything. He calls him a a whitewashed wall. You're, You're a nobody. And somebody says, how dare you speak to the high priest that way? And Paul literally says, I didn't even know he was the high priest. Um, I, I, I didn't know that this guy, this new guy is the high priest because high priests keep coming in and out. It was a position of power. High priests were removed constantly. If just a single action, um, just agitated and, and irritated Rome, they would take the high priest out and they would give him a new high priest. In fact, Caiaphas was taken out of office. The exact same year Pontius Pilate was taken out of office, uh, being governor of Israel um, at, in A.D. 36. So here's Caiaphas. He's a Sadducee, he's the high priest, and he says, I've got a solution. I've got a solution. He starts by saying, you know nothing at all, verse 49. You know nothing at all. Literally, it's, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't even know what you're talking about. He says, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you 
that one man died for the people and that the whole nation not perish. So it's not right. Notice he doesn't say this is what's right. This is what's just. He just says this is what is expedient. This is effective. It's not right, but it's effective. So we have a problem. We don't like this guy named Jesus. And we're afraid that potentially there's going to be a riot. And we don't know what's going to happen. But we can use that to try and get this man dead. So here's the solution. Kill him. Kill him, and we won't have any problem with riots, no problem with crowds. Kill him, and we have our solution. One man dies, the whole nation won't die. We substitute Jesus for us. He dies so that our nation doesn't have to. And here's irony number three. You can see it. Jesus must die to save the nation. Yes, that's what he did, just in a way that Caiaphas didn't imagine. This takes us into verse 51 and 52, and these verses are the heart of this passage. These, these verses are really the sermon. Um, I don't really have an outline for this uh, as far as the passage is concerned. I have an outline for verses 51 and 52. Uh, honestly, these two verses, it would be very easy to preach five sermons from these two verses. And I think you'll see the five major points come out of these two verses. These verses are so powerful. Caiaphas has a solution, but Caiaphas's solution is God's solution. As you see, verse 51, he didn't say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied, he spoke God's words. God does this all the time, right? He uses people, he uses uh, wicked people like Caiaphas or like Cyrus the king. He uses uh, people that are trying to make a buck like Balaam. He uses animals like Balaam's donkey to speak on behalf of God. And so that's why verse 51, my Bible says he didn't say this on his own initiative. Literally in the Greek, it's from himself. Caiaphas said these words, but they're coming from God. Caiaphas is saying them with one meaning and God is saying them through Caiaphas with a totally different meaning. This by the way, we could add a sixth sermon to this. This is a great picture of what verbal inspiration looks like. Men carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke on behalf of God. God is speaking through Caiaphas. This is how we got our Bible. God is putting these words into Caiaphas's mouth. He has a, a meaning that Caiaphas doesn't even understand. And these words that Caiaphas is going to say that God put in Caiaphas's mouth. These words will seal Jesus' death. What God said through Caiaphas, get Jesus killed. God was the one who spoke him. Caiaphas wanted Jesus dead and out of the way, so he spoke the words. God the Father wanted Jesus dead and risen to become the way of eternal life, so he spoke those words. This is, this is utterly profound. So let me give you the five sermons that could come from these two verses. And this will be our outline of these two verses. And, and I want you to, we're going to look at them just briefly. And, and then I want to give you the implications. So here's the heart of these verses and of this sermon. Number one, you can put them in five P's if you want five P's. Plan, place, promise, people, and particular. Plan, place, promise, people, and particular. Let's say it this way. Number one, the death of Jesus was God's plan 
from the beginning of time. The death of Jesus was God's plan from the beginning of time. In verse 51, Caiaphas didn't say these words on his own initiative, but God is speaking through him in order to get Jesus killed. So the death of Jesus was God's plan from the beginning. It'd be easy for us to read these verses and to think Caiaphas has just said something really bad, really sad. And God's up in heaven looking, going, hmm, that's not good. I don't want my son to die. What should I do? Oh, I know. Let's make a a plan where as he dies, he'll save the world. This will be great. We could read these verses and see God looking down and just saying, how can I turn this bad situation into something good? But that would be incorrect. God is speaking through Caiaphas to make the death of Jesus happen. It was his plan from the beginning. We know biblically it was his plan from the foundation of the world. Sometimes in our own troubles, we might think that God looks and goes, didn't want that to happen. But I'm God and I can make something good come from it. Just think about Lazarus. Think about the man born blind. Jesus says on both accounts, this isn't because of anything that anybody's done. This is for the glory of God. This has been done for the glory. I'm going to let Lazarus die for the glory of God. I'm going to let the man be born blind for the glory of God. It's his plan. The death of Jesus is not a tragic event that God used for good. The death of Jesus is a loving event that God planned for our good. He planned it. You know this in Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph says, you meant evil against me, but the exact same acts were meant by God for good. Not God turned them into good. God meant them for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. God used lying, selling Joseph into slavery. Everything that happened, God used it for good. So, sermon number one is that the death of Jesus was God's plan from the beginning. God is planning even the hardest, especially the hardest moments in our lives. God is planning them. And we're going to see how all of these have implications, massive implications for our life at the end of this sermon. Number two, place. So we've got plan. This is Jesus. This is God's plan that Jesus will die. Number two, place. Jesus died in the place of sinners. Jesus died in the place of sinners. So, verse 51, Caiaphas didn't say this on his own initiative. This is God's plan. So, God is prophesying, or Caiaphas is prophesying because uh, God is speaking through him that Jesus would die for the nations. You could circle that four in your Bible and draw a line over and put substitution. Substitution is the heart of the Christian faith. That one man would die for others in their place. So we've got plan, we've got place. In Caiaphas's mind, he thinks we kill Jesus so that the Romans won't kill us. It's a very selfish mindset, right? We'll kill him so that we don't have to die. In God's mind, God says, I will kill my son so that I don't have to kill you. And that's a very selfless act to say, I will give up my son so that I won't have to kill you. I will kill him. That's a, that's a hard word when we think about God and Jesus, when we think about the Father and 
and the son. The word kill, that's a challenging word. And I don't ever want to make people stumble needlessly. When I say that I believe that God is planning to kill his son, however challenging that might be, and it is challenging, I believe that it's biblical. I want to be biblical, and if I'm not biblical, I won't use those words. So turn to Isaiah 53, just really quickly. Isaiah 53, verse 4. God says about his son, this is Isaiah prophesying, Surely our griefs he himself bore. This is Isaiah 53, verse 4. He himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. Smitten, smacked, slapped, beaten of God. God did that. Verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And then to punish him. Verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. I remember leading worship through song at a, at a summer camp. We sang a song called Praise to Jesus Christ. And it says... It's a line, it's straight from Isaiah 53, and there's a line that says, Holy God was pleased to crush him as the guiltless sacrifice. I remember a youth pastor came up to me and said, That line is awful. That's a terrible line. God the Father was sad when his son died. Amen and amen, he was. He was also pleased. No, he wasn't. He wasn't pleased. I said, Can I have to take it up with God on this one? The Bible says he was pleased to crush his son. This is the heart of our faith. This is what we proclaim. That Jesus was killed instead of us. That we get to go free. I don't know if you ever think, this is something I do probably more than I should. I think, I wonder what it would be like if I got to go on like a TV show and talk to some celebrity. Every celebrity out there on TV shows and like television shows, they they misunderstand Christianity and they, they think that we're something that we're totally not and I'd love to go and, and proclaim what Christianity is. Biblical Christianity. And if somebody were to ask me, if I were to go on some television talk show and somebody were to ask me, what does it mean to be a Christian? This is it. It means that I deserve to die because of my sin but Jesus died in my place. That's the heart of Christianity. That God loved me so much that he would punish his son instead of punishing me. Jesus lived my sinless life that I could never live, but I needed to live to get to God. He died the death. He bore my punishment. This is the heart of the Christian faith. And so here in verse 51, Jesus was going to die for the nations in their place. Jesus died in the place of sinners. So we have plan, we have place. Number three, promise. God's promise to Israel, promises to Israel, will come to pass. God's promises to Israel will come to pass. Now, this is an enormously deep theological issue. This is an issue of biblical interpretation. This is a big deal. That's why, again, this could be a sermon in and of itself. But here's what this verse says. Jesus was going to die for the nation of Israel. He was going to die for Israel. To purchase and to buy the promises that were made to them that have yet to be fulfilled. You realize that Israel is still God's chosen people. They've rejected their Messiah. 
But as Romans 11, verse 11 says, they have stumbled, but not ultimately to fall. They will get back up. God will save them. Romans chapter 11, verse 26, in that way, all Israel will be saved. There is going to be a time, we know it from Revelation, 144,000 Jewish people will be saved in the end times. Ethnic Israel as a whole will receive the promises that God God made to them. They're irrevocable promises. They will happen. And that has massive implications. But here in this verse, what God is saying through Caiaphas is that Jesus is going to die to seal, to make those promises happen. Promises of land, promises of of peace, promises of prosperity under the rule of Jesus, even in uh, the time of Christmas, that Jesus is going to be the prince of peace and um, of his kingdom. There will be no end. That's the kingdom for Israel, and that's a kingdom that we get to be grafted into, praise the Lord. But Israel is not in that place right now. They will be, and that's because Jesus is going to die to make that happen. God's promises to Israel will come to pass. Number four, people. Jesus died to purchase people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Jesus died to purchase people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And nation. This is verse 52. Not for the nation of Israel only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Scattered abroad. That's like what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 16. I have other sheep who are not of this fold, not of Israel, that must come. They will hear my voice and they will come. The blood of Jesus purchases Israel's promises and Israel's salvation and purchases an ethnically diverse church made of, of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, also written by the Apostle John. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, because you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. So he's dying to purchase people from every single tribe, tongue, nation. Nobody left out. Nobody left out. So the point here in those verse, in that verse, is that the death of Christ has effects that are far beyond the ransom of Israel alone. They include Israel along with all the nations. Number five, finally, Jesus died to purchase his particular children. Jesus died to purchase his particular children. So plan, place, promises, people, and particular. He died to purchase his particular children. Again, verse 52, not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus died to gather his children. Or to use John chapter 10, he died to gather his sheep. So inside of the universal offer of salvation from the cross, God has a particular design in the death of his son to save his children. To save his children. God has a people chosen for himself, in the words of Ephesians chapter 1, from the foundation of the world. He has a people. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, you can write it down. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. So when Jesus died, he died to give an offer universally to the world, right? John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he died. 
But inside of that death, he gives a particular design, a particular call to his children to buy them. So I would plead with you, don't limit Christ's purposes in the cross to providing an opportunity for all to be saved alone. Don't limit to just that. Yes, God did that through Jesus. He provided an opportunity, a universal call to all. But he did so much more than that on the cross. And that's what's said here. He died, end of verse 52, to gather together his children that were scattered abroad. Jesus even says that to Paul in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 through 10. The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, don't be afraid any longer. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. I'm with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you because I have many people in this city. I have people in this city that I died to purchase. So Christ died not only to offer salvation to the whole world, but also to bring his people to himself. He died to overcome their rebellion and to pay the penalty that was due them because of their rebellion. That's why he died. Children of God, you know that phrase from chapter 1, verse 12. We might become the children of God to those who believe. It's an offer to us. But what this verse is saying is that Jesus purchased the belief. Jesus purchased the belief of his children. He purchased that. And nothing can stop that purchase. Um, not even this kangaroo court that's being thrown together. They're gathering together to try and stop Jesus. Very interesting. Uh, verse 52, the word gather there is the exact same verse or exact same word in verse 47 when it says Pharisees convened a council. They gathered together. It's the exact same Greek word. So they're gathering to try and stop Jesus. And irony number three, in their gathering to stop Jesus, they make Jesus's gathering possible. Jesus' gathering is now possible to gather together his children from all over the world. So those are the five sermons. You can see how those have massive depth to them. Those are the five sermons that could be preached out of this text. And every, every commentary, uh, every sermon, every, every pastor that's preaching on this is seen, every biblical pastor that's preaching on this is seen those five elements. They're, they're there. They're everywhere in the commentaries that I read. And it's massively deep, um, even though it just seems very, at face value, very obvious. So, verse 53, from that day on, they planned together to kill Jesus. So they planned, literally in the Greek, it's they resolved. He's going to die They already passed down the sentence. So in short, Jesus is not to be arrested in order to be tried. He's to be tried because he's already been found guilty. They just want to get him together. They want to seize him. They want to try him. They know that that he's guilty in their mind. They're going to kill him. So Jesus goes into hiding. Verse 54. He no longer continued to walk publicly from uh, among the Jews, but he went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Ephraim is about 12 miles uh, northeast of Jerusalem. And so Jesus goes there. We are about six weeks away from the Passion Week. And so Jesus goes into hiding. And as you know from last year's triumphal entry, um, or, or Palm Sunday when we had our Palm Sunday service, Jesus is not going to travel from Ephraim back to Jerusalem, that short 12-mile road. He's going to go the long way around. He's going to take a lot of time to go around, go around 
the Sea of Galilee, come down on the other side of the Jordan River, cross over to Jericho, heal blind Bartimaeus, and then come into Jerusalem through Bethany on a donkey. It's going to take a long time to travel, to gain crowds around him, to keep him safe. More irony here, last irony that we see. Verse 55, the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. Well, irony here is that the Jewish people are very concerned about purifying themselves. You have to be pure before you take part in the feast. And they're purifying themselves just as the religious leaders, their religious leaders are plotting to kill an innocent man. The impurity of the religious leaders as the people are purifying themselves. And they're seeking, in verse 56, for Jesus. And they're saying to one another as they stand in the temple, do you think that he's going to come to the feast at all? Maybe he's not going to come at all because everybody knows the religious leaders want him dead. There's a warrant out for his arrest. The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. This is just dry kindling waiting for a messianic match to blow it up. And that's what's going to happen during Passion Week. This is an amazing, amazing section of Scripture. And John will end the section there, and he's going to move to six days before the Passover, Friday before the triumphal entry, and take us to Bethany to a party where Mary is going to anoint Jesus with perfume. But for us, we need to go back, and we need to see the practical implications of those five points, of those five mini-sermons in verses 51 through 52. And my prayer, as I was studying this, my prayer is that you would see not only how each point applies to your life, but that you would see that these points that massively impact your life come from a very seemingly obvious and obscure passage. It's, just, it's an obvious point, but it's very obscure. It's just in what Caiaphas is saying and move on. And maybe we would all take a little bit more time and slow down as we read God's word to ask, okay, what is this saying and how can it truly impact my life today? So, number one, the plan. The death of Jesus was God's plan from the beginning of time. This massively impacts our lives because it gives us strength, comfort, and hope in hard times. It allows us to be strong in hard times or in seeming defeat because God's not just watching. God's working. God isn't just watching going, this is not good. I don't know what to do. Let's find a plan to make this work out for good. God is working from the beginning. He's planning it. He's in it. He's working for your good. So you might be here this morning and your health might be deteriorating. Your marriage might be a mess. You might hate your job. You might be estranged from a family member or a friend. And, and your sight terminates on that. Well, my marriage is just a mess. Well, I hate my job. And I would plead with you from this text. That's not all that's happening. God is working. It's not just that your marriage is a mess. God's doing something in that mess. He's he planned it. He's making things happen for your good. Remember James chapter 1. You know James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The reason why we think suffering is suffering, the reason why we think hard times are hard, 
is because they take things away from us. Suffering, when you go through suffering, you are frustrated and depressed and in despair because things are being taken away from you. Whether a loved one or a relationship, whatever it might be, things are being taken away. But James tells us if you have God's perspective, suffering is actually adding things to you. Um, if you don't go through suffering, you won't be complete. But if you go through suffering, you'll be complete, not lacking anything. So James says that when you suffer, you are actually gaining. Pieces of the puzzle are being included and added to your life. So in James' mind and in God's mind, if you don't suffer, then you don't gain anything. You're actually losing. You're going to walk through life incomplete. So don't, don't judge your circumstances by appearances. What did it look like to those watching on here? Is he even going to come to the feast? He's not going to come to the festival because everybody wants him dead. This is a bad moment for him. Looks like the end of Jesus. And Jesus says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down and I bring it back. God gets many victories through apparent defeats. So don't Walk through life wondering in the mess that's going on, in the sorrow and despair and the suffering. Where's God? Remember we said that about Lazarus. If you had only been here. And when Jesus raises him from the dead, what what must the people have thought? I should have trusted him. We can trust him now. We can trust him now. He has a plan for your life. Number two, he died in the place of sinners. He died in your place. How does this massively impact our souls? Because in our sinfulness, we can take comfort that at the very heart of Christianity is substitution. In 1 Peter 3.18, Jesus died for sins once and for all so that he might bring us to God, the just for the unjust. You have been brought to God. Or 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. He bore our sin. God condemned your sin, my sin, in Jesus so that we get to go free. So in your own sinfulness, you don't have to despair. Your sin has been paid for. As we sing, when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, you can look upward. And see the one who made an end to all of your sin. You can stare at your sin and and wallow in it and be despairing about it. Or you can look upward and see the substitute. He died in your place for you. Romans 8 verse 3. What the law could not do, weak as it was to the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That You have no condemnation. He condemned your sin already so that you can go free. Number three, God's promises to Israel will come to pass. God always keeps his promises. If he's kept his promises with Israel, he will keep his promises with you. The the sheer existence of the Jewish people and the certainty of their salvation is a sign for us today that God keeps his promises, that he exists, that he has saved his own chosen people time and time again And he will keep his promises to you. You have a faithful God. You have a faithful, trustworthy God. Number four, Jesus died to purchase people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This impacts us because it helps us see we must love diversity. 
We must love diversity. We must have a kingdom mindset the way that Jesus purchased his kingdom, his bride. He purchased people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. And so we must have a kingdom mindset. We aren't of this world. Let's not act like the people in this world that would be so um, cut off from any form of diversity. Just they stare at themselves and their own people and they don't open themselves up to anybody else. And finally, number five, Jesus died to purchase his particular children. He died to purchase his particular children. The particularity of Jesus' death for you has two massive implications. Number one, it gives us a rock-solid confidence in the success of the cross. Jesus didn't die hoping that people would take his free offer of salvation, wondering who's going to come. Like there's like a tally in, uh, in heaven. Oh, we got another one. This is great. Wow, I did not expect this many people to believe. He died to purchase the belief of those that would come to him. He died to make that happen. He secured the human response. So it's guaranteed. He says, I will gather my people, my children. I will gather them because of the cross. It's a promise. It's guaranteed. And this impacts our evangelism. We can go out into the world knowing that there are people Jesus died to save and he purchased their belief. And if we would just simply believe, or if we would be believing in his promise, if we would simply go into the world proclaiming the gospel, then God in his grace will save those and draw them to himself that he died for. Number two, much more personally though, this impacts us by seeing the love that Jesus has for you. Do you feel unloved by Jesus? Sometimes I, I, I get this a lot from people that say, I just don't feel loved by God. And when we talk about the cross, they just kind of go, well, that's great that God died for us, but he died for the world. He just died for everybody. And so the people that reject him and end up going to hell, he died and loves them the same way that he died and loved me. This changes everything to know if you don't feel loved by God, go back to the cross and realize when Jesus was dying on the cross, he was thinking about you by name. He died to purchase your belief. He died to purchase you. You guys know Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who loved me and gave himself up for me. He, yes, he died for the world. He gave himself for everybody to make a universal offer to the world. But he loved you he gave himself for you. This doesn't mean that he offered you love and you took it. It means that he awakened you with his love. He overcame you. He satisfied you by the cross and purchased the love that you have for him. So many people see the love of God for them as just God throwing out love. You reach for it and thus you become loved. Oh, God loved me. I reached for it. I became loved. He threw out a love line to everyone, the same love that he has for the person next to you that doesn't believe. Somehow you just grabbed it and God loves you differently because of that. No. He bought your grabbing for it. 
He died for you. If you're a child of God, he thought of you on the cross, and he died to bring you to himself. Now, obviously, there are questions that people have within that. And I would just plead with you in this moment, don't mainly think of theological problems. There there might be some in your mind. Don't mainly think of those. I think that they're reconcilable in the Bible. But don't mainly think of those when you hear this. Mainly think of just speechless gratitude that Jesus said on the cross, you're mine. I'm going to make that so. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to purchase you. And that's it. You're mine. He loved you. And I would say, if you don't know that love, then you can come. If you want to come to Jesus and accept the universal offer that he made to you, you can come. And if you come, you will realize that you can speak this way. He loved me particularly, individually. He thought of me. You can feel this way. If you don't come to Jesus, it's going to be because you didn't want to come. And you will be guilty. And God will never be faulted in your condemnation. It's because you didn't want to come. But if you come to Jesus, then you will know he loved you and he gave himself for you. For you, particularly, individually. So, two verses. Massive implications for strength in hard times, for confidence and comfort in the face of our own sinfulness, for confidence that God will keep his promises and he's trustworthy and faithful for loving all people groups and for joy and the very personal and particular love that God has for you in Jesus. That's the God that we serve and that's the God that we worship and that's the God that deserves all of our praise. God, thank you so much for Jesus who died for the world to give a universal offer so that all, any who would want to come may come. And thank you for purchasing the belief of your children. God, thank you so much for grace. All of those points, the fact that you were working in the midst of the tragic, seemingly tragic statement of Caiaphas. You were behind it. You were the one that carried him along to say those words, to get Jesus on the cross. May we in our hard times and in our distress look to Jesus and see that we can trust him. He's working. God, thank you for substitution. Thank you that even as we celebrate Christmas, Jesus was born for the purpose of dying in our place so that we can stand before you unashamed, guiltless. Even as we sing, guilty, vile, and helpless, we spotless lamb of God was he. And yet, on the cross, it was completely reversed. God, may we sing now as those who have been particularly loved by Jesus, the God of the universe, who loved us and gave himself for us. We pray in his name. Amen.